This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live recordings of talks direct from the Sydney Opera House stage. My name's Edwina Throsby, and today, another stellar event from Antidote, our festival of art, action and ideas. Claire Holland is the Managing Director of Sydney's beloved community broadcaster, FBI Radio, and has a vested interest in the local music scene. She's with our very own Ben Marshall, Head of Contemporary Music here at the Opera House. A lot has been said about the lockout laws and their impact on Sydney's nightlife in recent times. And Claire is a prominent supporter of the Keep Sydney Open campaign to mitigate or reverse some of these impacts. Um, Because this festival is called Antidote, this session isn't just a a litany of woe. Uh, It is a clear and concise exposition of the issues and uh, a pointer towards some potential opportunities. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Claire Holland. Hello and thank you. Um, I want to start out today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I want to pay my utmost respects to their elders past, present and future. And now I want you to start by thinking about a song that you love. I'll give you a couple of seconds. And now I want you to think about what was happening in your life the first time that you listened to it. For me, the first artist that I really properly fell in love with was the Icelandic singer Björk. I was maybe 14 or 15 years old at the time, and I was living in what felt like a stifling suburban existence. I'm part Chinese, and my life resembled nothing of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed beach babes of Summer Bay that I felt that I somehow had to aspire to. And then Björk burst into my life, and here was this woman who was unashamedly bold, who was super creative, and a total babe. And she presented a totally different way of being in the world. Her songs articulated these feelings of desire and yearning. And so through this love of her music, I made friends. And through those friends, I discovered other artists. And through those artists, I found a community and within that community, I formed an identity. The reality is that whilst my experience might be personal, it's not unique. It might be the Beatles, it might be B-Wise, it might be Beyonce, but these moments and the relationships we have with these artists are so important. They help to define us, they help to tie us to a place, and they help to tie us to each other. So, as Ben mentioned, I was invited here today to talk about the lockouts, Um, but more specifically, the invitation was to discuss this idea that the lockouts are a form of intergenerational politics that are playing out through cultural warfare. So, it's a mouthful, and I I sat down and I started to think about what those two ideas actually meant and what else surrounded it. And basically, it looked like this. So, I wanted to look at this issue in its totality because I feel like so often the discussion around the lockouts has been siloed. And I think that by ignoring this context in which it sits, it's made it much easier to dismiss. But I wanted to understand how a single piece of legislation might sit in this broader context. You know, how it might affect our national identity, 
what it might mean in terms of changes in cultural consumption and production, um, and what it might mean in a shifting media and music landscape. Because I think that looking at it through this lens opens up a conversation that's far bigger than this single piece of legislation. And I think that those conversations are important because they affect all of us in how we live and in what the future of this city will look like. Now, by way of brief introduction, as Ben mentioned, I'm the managing director of FBI Radio, which is Sydney's largest independent youth broadcaster. Basically, we operate on a community radio license, and that license mandates that we have to have certain communities of interest. So the communities of interest that we're licensed for is for youth and for emergent cultures. So it's basically my job to think about this stuff, and I do every day. Um, but it's also my job to think about how I can champion those two communities to the half a million listeners that we have. And what I've found over the last couple of years is that there's kind of been this growing, pervasive narrative that's developed that somehow Sydney is dead or dying. And I think that sits in contrast to all the incredible creative communities and all of the amazing artists that I come uh, into contact with every day through my job. So I kind of want to unpack that idea a bit, and I want to understand how we might better understand how this is related, how we might better frame the issue, and what we might do about it. So, let's start with the single piece of legislation. It's the Liquor Amendment Act of 2014. Um, and for those of you who have read it, congratulations, and wow, <laughs> because it's actually a 26-page document which amended the even longer Liquor Act of 2007. Now, what that act does is it regulates what licensed premises can and can't do in New South Wales. And as you can imagine, there's a whole lot of stuff in all of those pages. But for the purposes of today's discussion, I want to focus on the amendments which are referred to collectively as the lockouts. To summarise, the lockouts refer to a range of new requirements that came in that meant that licensed premises located in certain areas in the CBD and King's Cross could no longer allow patrons to enter after 1.30am or to serve alcohol after 3. And the lockouts were introduced in response to a series of alcohol-related fatalities um, in an effort to try and curb violence. Now, irrespective of whether they achieved the effect of reducing violence, which is debatable, they had consequences for the social and cultural fabric of the city. And so now I want to move across to live music and to venues, and I want to share with you some stats that were released by the Live Music Office and APRA AMCOS. They did a study, and about two years after the lockouts had been introduced, the study found that in that area, attendance in those venues for live music had dropped by 40%. So that meant that four people out of every 10 were no longer going to those venues, and that there was a 15% overall reduction in expenditure on license fees, on artist fees, I'm sorry. Um, so to better understand these stats, you basically need to understand the business model that um, surrounds live music venues. So it's pretty common for live music venues to program what's considered to or referred to as two houses a night. So it's basically an early show and a late one. Um, and you can imagine it's similar to a model of restaurants having two sittings a night. 
And having those two houses allows a venue to have two different audiences through the doors, which broadens the scope of programming, and it increases the number and the type of artists that those venues can appeal to and can support. So basically, to summarise, it's more people in your venue for longer with different tastes drinking. And that last point is also important because basically the business model for live music venues at the moment means that those venues probably only receive maybe like one or two dollars per ticket, if that. And so making money on the bar is how those venues keep their lights on. So what happened is that the lockouts disrupted that two show a night model. So that half an hour meant that it became hard to fit those two houses in. People stopped venue hopping. You know, they stopped moving freely between different venues because they were worried that they would get locked into one venue or locked out of when their friends were in another. And one show a night meant a narrowing of programming. Less diversity in programming appealed to fewer audiences, and so fewer people went out. Venues felt the financial pressures of that, and so more venues started closing. And with less venues, there were fewer musical choices again that, that appealed to fewer people, and so more people stopped going out. And then this narrative that spread that Sydney was dying, and more people started, stopped going out. So I want to move across now to regulation, because I think it's really important to note that the lockouts are definitely not the sole reason that music venues are closing. There's a bunch of other regulatory challenges that make it a really difficult environment to operate in. So as well as licensing, you're dealing with conditions around development consent, with building codes and with planning. Now, I want to stop and qualify that I don't think that regulation is inherently bad. It's there, for example, to stop people from dying in a fire, which we saw in the tragic events in Oakland, or in getting crushed in a stampede if they have to all exit a building quickly. But knowing how to interpret and navigate that legislation requires skill, and it takes both time and money. Most music venues, certainly small to medium ones, don't operate with many staff that understand this stuff. So they've maybe got one or two people at most, and they have to have conversations with New South Wales planning, the local police, the licensing police, the council, and liquor and gaming. And so you've got all these different regulatory bodies having conversations with you and telling you what you need to do. And the thing is that they often aren't talking to one another. And at times, the information that they're giving you is conflicting. You might have a representative from each and every one of those bodies into your venue on a given night while your doors are open and you're trying to operate. And when you're a small to medium business operating with limited margins, it's enough to break you or the budget. Which brings us now to the character of a city. Culture, by its nature, is messy, and it's noisy, and it can sometimes be risky. I think in part that's the appeal, and I think in part it's its function, because it pushes us into new territories, both intellectually and physically. Now, regulation, on the other hand, is there to mitigate risk. And it's there to balance the needs of a complex and diverse population. And the tension that arises between culture and regulation is in determining what is and what is not an acceptable risk. 
and, it's, and the tension is in who those decisions favour. Now, we make decisions about regulation all the time. We do it for the building industry, for the gambling industry, for the advertising industry, for the fashion industry. And I think that a vibrant culture or a vibrant city is one that balances the tensions between culture and regulation and yet still manages to maintain, maintain space for cultural and social activity. And I think through the lockouts, that balance has shifted. So in March 2017, and it's depressing that I know this, the median house price in Sydney was $1,151,565. And in countless surveys about the issues that matter the most to young people, housing affordability is almost consistently in the top three. So the great Australian dream of owning your own home is well and truly out of reach for a growing number of Australians. So it's when you start to link these ideas together, when you look at and you link housing affordability, closing music venues, the level of regulation that's happening in this city that this theme of intergenerational politics starts to emerge. It's really hard for younger generations not to feel like they're being locked out of the experiences and the opportunities that previous generations had had. And the result is this feeling of disempowerment and disenchantment. It's this feeling that youth and cultural interests are somehow being pushed to the margins. So, enter Keep Sydney Open. Keep Sydney Open was a grassroots movement that formed to oppose the lockouts and to advocate for a safe and vibrant late-night culture. And I think, for me, Keep Sydney Open represents this really interesting new model for a social movement. They were nominated for a Khan Lion Award for a campaign that they ran with some local Sydney musicians, and they've managed to mobilise and reach hundreds of thousands of people through social media. And I think the level of engagement that occurred with Keep Sydney Open is not just because people want to be frequenting dance floors at 3am, but it's because I think that they tapped into this feeling of disenchantment. And it offered a way for people to finally stand up and say, hey, I love this city, I want space in it, and I think that culture matters. Because we know that cultural participation builds community. Whilst audiences go to see bands, they go to see one another, and they go to see one another going to see bands. It's a social activity. And it's also in these places that artists can really test their ideas and start to hone their craft. And the challenge that we have in the current regulatory environment is that it's getting harder to do. You can't build your identity or your community or your craft around something that you do once a year. And it's in this context that social activity starts to have a double meaning. See, how and where we can produce and consume culture is also changing. We have access to unlimited music at our fingertips um, and content from all around the world. And on the one hand, it's great. It's created this incredible level of accessibility. But, and, and anyone with a laptop and an internet connection can upload their music and they can connect with an audience. But technology's influence also presents new challenges for the music industry. 
online streaming platforms have not only changed the way that audiences are consuming music, but it's changing the extent that artists can rely on money from recorded music. And as a result, the income from live performance is now an integral part of a viable and sustainable career as an artist, providing that you can actually find a stage in Sydney to perform on. Which leads me now to this idea of the artistic ecosystem. So in 2015, musician Brian Eno gave an amazing John Peel lecture where he spoke about the value of culture. And in it, he acknowledges this idea that, I, that culture doesn't exist in a vacuum. So artists aren't these kind of isolated entities, completely divorced from the world, that are somehow struck by divine inspiration. And, th and they don't come out fully formed either. What you look at across history, whether we're talking about music, or we're talking about literature, or we're talking about theatre, is that their success is usually contingent on there being this thriving scene of artists that surround them, and a community. And it forms this kind of ecosystem. And the difficult thing Eno says about ecosystems is that it's impossible to tell what the important parts are. So you can take one thing out of an ecosystem and have a collapse in a completely different area. And people find it really difficult to wrap their head around the idea of an artistic ecosystem because I think we're used to thinking of things in hierarchies. And that's where culture gets itself stuck. So we have to articulate its value within these existing hierarchies. And I think, you know, we're always so quick to quantify culture in its economic terms. So I can tell you that, you know, each year the Australian music industry contributes $1.2 billion to the economy. Or I can tell you that it employs 65,000 people nationally. And I can do that because the economic value of culture is not insignificant. But I think that the value of culture goes so much further than its contribution to the GDP or to property prices. And the problem that we have is that that intrinsic value of culture is really hard to quantify other than through our own personal experiences. Now, a bunch of people have tried. I'm going to lean on one of them. Former Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, probably a good start, um, once stated that in any civilised society, the arts and associated amenities must occupy a central place. Their enjoyment should not be seen as remote from everyday life. While our other objectives are, a means to, are all a means to an end, the enjoyment of the arts is an end in itself. This idea of an end in itself, in itself it's a wonderful idea. But it's one that's really difficult to argue easily. And trust me, I've tried. It's definitely not designed for a 30-second soundbite. And so what happens is we default to these metrics that are really easy. So we talk about return on investment. We talk about public safety. We talk about square meterage. But what I would argue is what else is money and public policy and regulation for, if not for us to have a good life? And how else might we better articulate the tensions and the joys of a civil society if not through cultural production and participation. And we do. So in June this year, 
the Australia Council for the Arts released some results of a national survey that found that 98% of all Australians engage with the arts. That's 98 out of 100 people. It's, it's pretty much all of us. So what I don't understand is why if more Australians go to engage with the arts than sport, and if more Australians go to see live music every year, why isn't it something that is more intrinsic to our national identity, you know? And why are we regulating against it? Which brings me to the centre. Um, power, hope, change and action. And it's at this point that I want to introduce you to the writings of Rebecca Solnit. She's an essayist and an activist, and the particular work that I want to draw your attention to is called Hope in the Dark. It was first published in 2004, at the height of the Bush administration and the Iraq war, and then it was republished again last year, um, just before Trump was re-elected, and that's when I read it. And basically the book is this, like, it's a really interesting examination of change and this idea of hope. And she sort of, she argues this idea that change isn't linear and it's not all encompassing and it's really hard to identify and that things are shifting and moving concurrently, forwards and backwards and constantly. And she explains it this way and, and with the intention and the point of inspiring us to act. I want to take a quick reading from the forward of the republished version of her book because I think she articulates it really succinctly and really beautifully. So, hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. When you recognise uncertainty, you recognise that you may be able to influence the outcomes you alone, or you in concert with a few dozen or several million others. Hope is the embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. Optimists think it will all be fine without our involvement. Pessimists take the opposite position, but both excuse themselves from acting. It's the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact, are not things we can know beforehand. Which leads me to what I've affectionately termed phase two of this talk, hope. I want to take Solnit's idea and I want to focus on the small incremental changes or actions that are happening around these areas. Because I think the single most destructive thing that we can do is to perpetuate the myth that Sydney's cultural fabric is somehow irreversibly damaged because it removes our responsibility to act, it undermines what currently exists, and it impedes our ability to change it. And change is happening, always. So, let's have a look at it. Local restauranteurs Mary's have taken over the licence of the iconic Lansdowne Hotel and reopened the band room. And I think that's going to relieve some of the pressure of the recent closure of Newtown Social Club. Chippendale Bar Freeders, who are working a lot with emerging artists and musicians, have seen their trading hours extended from midnight to 2am. We're seeing programmers adapt 
and find new ways to build audiences. Local event promoter Astral People through a series of parties at the National Art School in the grounds of, in the courtyard of the, um, histo the historic heritage building. Heaps Gay shut off a street in Marrickville for a street party where over 2,000 people showed up. And DIY continues. Every weekend, there are underground parties happening in warehouses all across Sydney. And we understand the balancing act between culture and regulation continues. That tension is still there. So in 2016, the government commissioned an independent review of the liquor reforms to be undertaken by a former High Court judge, Justice Callanan. Now, because of the work that they'd done, Keep Sydney Open were invited to participate in a series of roundtables. I wrote a submission on behalf of FBI Radio, as did countless venues and artists and musicians and music lovers. Music New South Wales and the Live Music Office word into action and consultation. Now, the Callanan Review recommended that the lockout laws should be relaxed for live entertainment venues. And so there's currently a two-year trial of a 2 a.m. lockout and a 3.30 a.m. last drinks for approved venues. It was the first time that many of the people that I've listed above had engaged with the regulatory process. It mobilised huge segments of Sydney's creative community. And whilst I think that the half an hour exemption will do very little to fix the issue, the process challenged us to mobilise and to think about our value and how we best articulate it. And so I want to highlight some of the areas where movement or action has occurred or is occurring. Live music, venues, cultural participation, youth culture, community, DIY, artistic ecosystem, Keep Sydney Open, FBI Radio, social media, changing media landscape. It kind of says it for itself. The more I think about it, the more I think that this issue is about valuing cultural activity. I remember being asked a couple of months ago by a journalist who was interviewing me around this issue what it felt like to be out at 3am these days. And I didn't really know how to answer. Partly because I'm not 21 anymore and frequenting nightclubs so much. Uh, but to be honest, I also knew that answering that question would open me up to judgments about my lifestyle on national television. Because somehow we've allowed this narrative to develop that the night is illicit and dangerous and a threat to public safety. And implicit in that is that anyone that wants to engage in activity in the night is illicit and dangerous and a threat to public safety. And so I kind of fumbled around with some like deliberately inarticulate answer about the fact that I'm not 21 anymore, knowing that it wouldn't be interesting enough and that it'd end up on the cutting room floor, which it did. But I regret not answering that question. And so I'm going to try now. And I'm going to try and talk to why the night matters. For me, there's a real sense of freedom that comes with being out at night, when all the business or all the busyness of the daytime has subsided. We can kind of cast off the pressures of the day and the identities that we inhabit during the day. For me, there's always also been this real sense of 
spaciousness in the night with the winding down of that other activity. And for me, in that spaciousness, it presents the lure of possibility, of creativity, and of adventure. It comes with the opportunity to discover new facets of our city, new facets of each other, and new facets of ourselves. Because it was the night that allowed 15-year-old me to cast off my feelings of isolation and alienation. It was a night that allowed me to form a new community and an identity. It was a night that allowed 17-year-old me to throw my first warehouse party. And when a thousand people showed up, it was a night that taught me that I'm really good at bringing people together. <laughs> and I love it. It set me on a trajectory that seen me work for some of Sydney's most prestigious cultural institutions like Sydney Festival and the Biennale of Sydney. So really, the night's been kind to me, and it's been fundamental to my identity. It's what's led me to my position today as the managing director of Sydney's largest independent youth broadcaster, and it's absolutely given me the skills now to run that organisation that champions our city and its inhabitants on a daily basis. And so this is not the face of someone you need to be afraid of. <laughs> what? <laughs> because safety and cultural vibrancy need not be mutually exclusive. It is an absolutely false dichotomy. It does not need to be one or the other. There are plenty of examples of regulatory choices that we could be making for this city that are being employed in cities all around the world that ensure safety without limiting cultural activity and participation. And cultural participation is what we should be encouraging. It is the good life. And I'm worried that the pipeline for talent is going to dry up if we don't have the stages for artists to hone their craft. I'm worried for the young queer boy who needs a community to be able to support him through the debate that's raging around marriage equality right now. I'm worried about the amazing talent that I'm seeing in Western Sydney wrestling with their cultural identity. I'm worried about the music industry straining under the weight of technological change. If we don't create these opportunity now, who is going to fill the stages at the Opera House in the future? And how is it possibly going to reflect our country's diversity? And so, before I finish up, I want to talk about three actions that I would urge you to take. One, listen. Make some space for genuine discovery. Listen to radio, 94.5 FM. <laughs> listen to older and younger voices. Talk to one another. Seek out dissenting ideas and try to understand them. Share your personal moments of cultural significance and tease them out of others. Make people realise why they matter. Two, advocate for ongoing regulatory reform. One that doesn't presume safety and cultural activity need be mutually exclusive but please refrain from throwing up your arms in dismay. 
and refrain from thinking that the culture in this city is somehow irreversibly damaged. Teach yourself about the regulatory environment. <laughs> that sounds fun, but do. And acknowledge that, that regulators have to balance the complex needs of a broad range of people. Regulators are people too. Three, go out. Be a cultural participant. This is the single most effective action that we can all take. We can go to see live music. We can go to the theatre. We can visit public libraries, fill our small bars, fill our galleries, fill our venues. You have the responsibility and you have the opportunity to do something about this just by your participation. Now, back to Solnit. Hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. Change is happening, always. Seize the ambiguity in the unknown. Embrace the spaciousness of the nighttime. Now I want you to return to that song that you really love. Go home and listen to it. Imagine your life in its absence. Let's acknowledge that these things matter and let's live in hope. Thank you. That was fantastic, Claire. Thank you. Look, Thank there's you. so much in there I'd love to kind of delve down into. Look, the first question I'd like to ask is about the intergenerational politics side of things. Um, there was a fascinating article in The Economist recently called, um, the title of it was The Continent Generation. And it was talking about how younger people today are far better behaved than their elders. And that the peak for bad behaviour was about in the mid-90s, probably when we were kind of teenagers. And that ever since then, sort of risky behaviour for binge drinking, for drug taking, teenage pregnancies, sort of violence, everything has declined. And I wonder if there's an element of an older generation being scared that the younger generation might behave like bad. them. Yeah, whereas they're actually potentially not, and certainly a whole lot less bored. Um, I think younger people are far less bored than we, we necessarily yeah. used to be. What do you think about that idea? I mean, I think, because I am obviously working with young people every day, and they're great, and they are really very polite and very well behaved. Um, <laughs> And, it, and it, it's, it's difficult because, yeah, I think there may be definitely that feeling that, um, that you know, the behaviour that, that older generations might have exhibited, it, there's an anxiety about that. But I also kind of want to encourage that as well. I feel as though, um, you know, though it was that, those conversations of those formative moments that you have. Like, I think, um, you, you know, you can be a little bit... You, you don't necessarily have to be well-behaved for things to be safe. You know, I'm not suggesting that everyone starts engaging in criminal activity, but I think the idea is that cultural activity is fun. Mm. You can let your hair down a bit. That's sort of the point. Um, yeah, and I think, um, you know, I think it's really important that we create that space for that. And we were talking yesterday and you were saying there were some friends of your family who were part of sort of a bohemian Sydney world that have sort of maybe looking at the changes that are going on and sometimes don't remember 
what it was like to be young as well. This sort of, you know, I talked a minute ago about maybe exaggerating the fears of their behavior from when they were young, but perhaps there's also a view that you sort of forget that that's also what it's like to be young as well. I, I think that this that's, is okay. I think that's happening a lot. You know, I think, and, that, and that's kind of why I talk about this idea of try to have those conversations between generations, because it, it is not necessarily the younger people that are making those kind of regulatory or political choices. Um, and, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, increasingly more I think that what I'm starting to realise is that it's difficult unless you're speaking about personal experiences or it doesn't seem to connect unless you're sharing these experiences that people can kind of relate to. So you can talk about all of these, you know, ideas or stats or the idea of danger or, or you know, the cultural contribution to the economy, but it's actually those stories that you tell that other generations have experienced and that they can kind of understand, have somehow informed their lives, other things that I think are going to help this conversation. Mm, no, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And that language that you used before about how people in our positions or people who run arts organizations or festivals talk about art there there can be an overemphasis on the financial yeah. rather than the um than the inherent value of art uh, there's a really lovely example of that that i, I like to use there was a um a, a writer uh a Frank, Frank Cottrell Boyce, who gave this wonderful line in an essay he wrote for The Guardian about how he's a writer and he's invited to schools sometimes to talk about being a writer. He says, sometimes I go to schools and the library's not there anymore. Yeah. And it's called a, or it's called a learning resource centre and it looks like a call centre. Yeah. And his wonderful line that really stayed with me was that um, a book is not a learning resource. It is the knife that picks the lock of your isolation. It's a box of delights. Yeah. And that sort of language around art for its own sake, it, it isn't well developed. Why do you think that is? I think, um, I mean, and I'm like, I'm guilty of doing this as well as I is, I, you know, you look at, and I read this amazing um, piece by a, um, a writer called Justin O'Connor, which was looking at this idea of like the creative economy, um, the rise of the creative economy. And it sort of basically looked at this idea of the language that we use to frame the discussion around art and culture. And so it was sort of like you see this um, trajectory where we used to talk about art and then we talked about culture and then we talked about the cultural industries and the word industry comes in. Mm -hmm. And then we move from cultural industries to we suddenly want to broaden that so we call it crea creativity. And then we have the creative economies. And so it's, it's almost that idea where, and, and again it comes back to that idea of talking about these kind of structures um, we're kind of trying to quantify things within structures that exist. And I guess in this kind of like neoliberal framework, that's the structure. And so I think, you know, a lot of people that are working in this area are constantly trying to value it in those terms. And I've, and I've done a lot of that. And I think that increasingly more... Um, I mean, and, and again, I say that, that it, it, it's not... It's not insignificant. Art and culture does not exist again in a vacuum where it is not part of a bigger structure where it has, you know, responsibilities around it being, you know, economically viable and sustainable and valuable. But, um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's this idea that we also need to think beyond that as well. Um, 
because also that's really boring for audience. Like, oh, you should come to this event because it's going to contribute $1.2 billion to the economy. Like, it's not, you know, and I think you that's You just the, want my money. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's, like, the other side of it is we also need to think about, like, the other side of the equation, which is the audience and participation. So, yeah, I think, I, I don't, I, I think we've sort of gone down that path and again, I'm not saying, and I think we, and the reality is I think, you know, for people like us in our jobs, we're still going to have to do that all the time. But I think we also need to probably start looking at different language and different ways of articulating it. And I mean, I think, you know, the thing, the great thing about artists is that, that artists are storytellers, you know? So if, if an artist can't engage in that story, like, no, you know, no one can. Yeah. I love the reference to Brian Eno in there and his great kind of John Peel lecture. Such a good lecture. It's a phenomenal lecture. lecture. And he talks about sort of artists borrowing up to, cozying up to creative industries rather than talking about it as an art form yeah. to sort of give it credibility. But one of the things I love most about his analysis of art is that um, it's all the things we don't have to do. Culture yeah. is all the things we don't have to do. We have to eat, but we don't have to have cuisine. Um, we have to have shelter, but you don't have to have architecture. We have to move, but you don't have to have dance yeah. and that his idea is that everything that we do all this sorts of stylistic embellishments are trying on a world that every decision you make about a haircut or every decision you make about a pair of shoes is uh, a way of in miniature trying on another world yeah. and I love linking that to your beautiful passage in there about the night yeah. and the expansiveness of possibilities and the night is one of the spaces where trying another world feels the most convincing yeah. and, and how important that is as, as, as humans to experience that. I mean he also like I love this I love this lecture too if you haven't listened to it go home and listen to it but yeah he talks about this like an extension of that as well is that he's saying increasingly as the world gets faster and faster and as we are kind of like bombarded by more and more opportunities and experiences and choices um, that trying on of things that making it, it's it's thinking about that idea of like you're not just trying on a garment or you're not just trying you're actually you're also trying you're trying on ideas mm. through those experiences and I mean he kind of talks about this idea that really resonated for me where it's like yeah you're trying as the world gets faster and faster it's like we're actually trying on this is the this is the going to be an increasingly more important vehicle for making sense of the world um, and I really, you know, I really love that. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's kind of definitely influenced my, my thinking more and more. Yeah, and it's part of this idea of, of enriching the language about discussing art, that it's a way of trying on other perspectives and yeah. seeing things from someone else's point of view that's yeah. essential for anything we, we describe as a civilization. I mean, he talks about that idea too, which is kind of really interesting in the context of the lockouts, where he talks about the idea of being able to try stuff on in an environment that is safe and mm. not dangerous. Mm. So it's kind of, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, so it's almost this idea that, um, that, this, that, that we have these kind of, it's play, mm. it's not real. And, and so, but it also allows us to kind of extrapolate and to take ideas further and to see, you know, how we might reconcile something, you know, about the world or about ourselves and, 
Yeah, it's it's, it, and I, I guess that's kind of counter to. I mean, I think this is the problem. There's this sort of like there's just this lack of sophistication around the language of what art and culture does. What it is and what it does. Yeah, um, he's expressed his frustration that a science. You ask scientists what they do, yeah. and they sort of say, in a sentence, more or less, you know, we study the world closely in order to better understand it. Yeah. But you ask a hundred artists so do what we. they do. They exactly. It is. It's it's similar. Yeah. But it's um expressing sorts of those functions of art is incredibly important. Which is because it's slippery. Like that's kind of the point. You know, like it's not this clean. It's it's constantly you know moving into these new territories and spaces and pushing our ideas and responding to like a, the world and how it's changing. And I mean, so is science actually, if we're honest. But yeah, I think, but, but it is a particularly difficult thing to kind of pin down and, um, you know, try and articulate, which is, you know, and it's, and it's that thing where I felt that same thing where I'm like, I, I don't know how to express, how can I possibly express the importance or, or what that night, what the night is and it's like well all I can do is speak through that my own personal experience no, it was beautiful look we have about 10 minutes left is there any questions from if there are please head to the microphones one two up there and three but look if anyone's heading up I'll ask another question how you talk about the character of the city and there's an aspect to Sydney I found interesting I grew up in Perth yeah. and moved here in my in my 20s Sydney's confidence, from my perspective, is either at one end of the spectrum or the other. There is this sort of, it's rah-rah and absolutely we're amazing, or it collapses very quickly and there's terrible trouble. And it has a hard time occupying a self-confident middle ground. Yeah. What do you think? And I love Sydney. Oh, it's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean... I wonder, as, do you think that's unique to Sydney? I don't think it's unique to Sydney, but I think it's probably a function of a city that's still growing into the city that it will eventually become. Yeah. I think um, it's maybe also this idea of, like, um, we always... We kind of, like... We're often looking for a... Th we're, we're often fixated on a threat, you know? I think it's like you look at you look at politics and you look at how polit the landscape of politics is changing and increasingly more there's this idea of something being a threat, you know? And I think that that idea means that you pivot between this idea of this threat and this kind of impending doom and then, like, this, like, crazy sense of, like, protection and pride. And um, I wonder if that has, you know, I wonder if that, has anything to do with it? I think it could. And I think it's also sort of, if you take a long view of the arc of, of Sydney nightlife, I mean, I got here just as the Olympics was happening. Yeah. And that period after the Olympics was not a great time for nightlife in Sydney. I think today is vastly better. Yeah. But you can lose perspective on that. And there's a lot to be said for paying attention to the problems of today. And I, yeah, and I think that's, but, I mean, that's the point. It's like, and I remember, you know, it's the same thing. It's like you see these kind of ebbs and flows um, of different cultural activity, or you see, you know, a particular art art form start really strong, you know, and, and, and then a couple of years later it might not be. And I, I think that stuff is always changing. And yeah, I th which is kind of the whole idea. It's sort of, it's saying, let's actually look at what is happening. And, you know, I mean, Sydney has this obsession with kind of this idea of being like shiny and razzle dazzle. Um, but there's actually like this constant fabric that's happening all the time that 
is actually really is like really interesting. Mm. And I don't and I don't by any means mean to say that there's not um, value in having those moments of spectacle, and and or those moments of you know, a bit of glamour. But like, oh my god, I can't believe I said that. But like, um, like yeah, I think. Um, but at the same time, I think it's like, how do we actually create this kind of um, you know sense of engagement and pride with all the activity that's happening all the time because it's like when you go overseas and and you tell someone that you're Australian and you've got artists with you like people are falling over themselves like they the kind of the quality of the artistic output that we are producing is not a problem so it's like what is it that why is it that we don't feel like that at home it's a really interesting question because the Sydney I love is the sort of the subcultural Sydney. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to be in a city without Mad Racket or, yeah. you know, the Good God People or, or Repressed Records. But there's that sense as well that it's a two-way street that you don't really get a vibrant culture without a vibrant subculture and that the subculture has an absolutely valid, vital part of yeah. the, the fabric of a city. And, and I think that's my concern. I mean, my concern with all of this is that if we don't look at and I'm not in it and I'm not suggesting it's just the lockouts I'm sort of saying if we don't recognize that artistic ecosystem and if we don't think about constantly how we can facilitate that happening you're not going to have that stuff bubbling under the surface and so if, even if you're an, an audience member and you or you love certain artists that actually aren't engaging with that the re uh, you're not engaging with that. The reality is that most of those artists that, that kind of breakthrough have at some point. And so it, it's also understanding, and I think this is for, for other generations as well, it's like understanding that we need to make sure that we're still creating that, you know, the, the next generation of talent, both that may continue to exist in those kind of, you know, layers um, you know, those underground layers or in those kind of experimental spaces, but also the ones that punch through and play the stages of the, you know, the forecourt at the opera house or that are, you know, I think that's, that's sort of always been and will always be the challenge of the creative communities to try and help to keep that balance and that pipeline happening. Completely. Look, I think we're out of time, oh. Claire. Thank you so much for sorry. that fantastic. Oh, sorry. We will quickly jump uh, to a question. I didn't see you there. Um, one of, the, I think, one of the most disheartening parts of Sydney's cultural landscape is the power that money has to corrupt and like impact positive change. Um, the fact that casinos are exempt from lockouts, and the fact that you know um, affordable housing has moved for giant developments. Do you see what sort of positive action can we take to change that? And do you see any hope in New South Wales political climate? I think, um, yeah, I, look, I think it is, is definitely there are aspects of this city that are presenting huge challenges and, you know, the rampant development is one of them. Um, but I think the point is, is that what will happen in terms of how regulators and or politicians are making decisions is based on the actions, the actual actions and needs of its constituents. And so I think that's where I was kind of explaining, like, by going out, by engaging in those cultural activities, by actually um, sort of creating, you know, if you can create a groundswell where, like, if you think about regulation, regulation can only exist 
if society permits it. So it's kind of like if we sort of like create, if, if, if we sort of look at how we can um, ensure that the things that we care about are valued and we demonstrate that by doing them and by more people doing them, I think that kind of helps. Um, yeah. Thanks, Chris. Any other questions? Hi, Claire. Oh, hello. Um, uh, just a curious question. Uh, I'm curious about the impact of the lockout laws were located primarily in this local government area. What what other lessons are you seeing being learned and applied across Sydney in the other local government areas where you mentioned Western Sydney in, in your in your address just then and um, how are they taking action or what what, are, what sort of cultural action are they encouraging as a result of seeing what's happened to um, all the live art stuff going on, dying, not dying, sorry, I'll say it. Is I'll, the step out of the, I'll step out of pessimism, but how, how has all that, how the localities have affected the shiny part of the city, which is yeah. closer to the shiny part of the water? But what else is happening? Yeah, what is else it? Have, you, have you seen so far that you feel like, okay, um, say what's, what's Parramatta doing, say what's Canada Bay doing? Is, I mean, I think, you know, there's some, I mean, I, there, I'm a huge advocate for a bunch of cultural activity that's happening in Western Sydney. I think some of the most interesting work is happening in those areas. Um, the, the, the challenge is, is that, you know, and this is one of the questions, it's like, well, why don't you just move all those venues somewhere else? And that isn't, you know, that is in some ways a possibility. You know, one of the things we can do is just start opening different spaces, but I think it's also understanding the challenges of opening those spaces as well, irrespective of whether you're within the lockout zone or not. Mm. So again, I think it's just a que it's a question of um, that stuff will take time. There aren't a huge number of venues, music venues in Western Sydney that are looking at programming sort of contemporary music for young people, but that's definitely changing. Um, and so, and I think that's great because I also think the other thing we've got to acknowledge is that you know the, the where populations are living in Sydney is also shifting. And so again, it's like thinking of it as, as this kind of like cohesive um, puzzle and challenge. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, yes, though that stuff is building and I think that's actually a good thing, but it's, it's taking time. And I think you also need to still support the, um, you know, the venues that exist in these areas that have a history of doing that, that have an audience for that. So, um, all that stuff has to happen concurrently. Oh, I, live, I live in the area anyway, so <laughs> I wasn't yeah. gonna, not speaking on behalf yeah. of Western Sydney, but yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of an, yeah. there's a lot of amazing contemporary music coming out of Western Sydney now, um, but in terms of there being like a lot of live music venues in those areas, not so much yet, and and still a lot of the presentation of those artists is still in in these areas. What proportion of FBI's audience is in the inner west or and in the western suburbs? Um, so probably about 50% um, of our audience lives in um, the eastern suburbs, the inner city and the inner west um, and the north shore and then the other 50% um, is spread across um, a lot more of greater Sydney. So, you know, like... I think 16% of our audience is is in is in Parramatta, so there's definitely this sort of you know there's this growing for, yeah. absolutely, and um, and I think that's really interesting. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, please thank, join me in thanking Claire Holland. That was FBI Radio's Claire Holland talking with Ben Marshall about our city's, thankfully unimpeded, nightlife. And if you like this talk, come on, subscribe. More talks from Antidote Festival are coming your way. Next week, we have Rennie Edo-Lodge, author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Until then, podcast listeners.